if there was one person who could be considered the towering intellectual figure of the Muslim Middle Ages, it is undoubtedly Abu Ali al-Hussein ibn Abdullah ibn Sina, known as Ibn Sina for short, or by his Latinized name Avicenna. So influential was he on medieval thought, even in Europe, you can actually find more sources under the name Avicenna than under his Arabic name Ibn Sina. Well, within the Arab world, we can easily divide philosophy into the period before Ibn Sina and after. He's the most intentionally independent philosopher of the Middle Ages. While those before him commented on Aristotle, those after him would generally be commenting on Ibn Sina himself. But that was not all he did. He was in fact one of the most influential figures on medieval medicine, both in the Muslim world and in the Arab world. He wrote about music, he wrote about logic, he wrote about science. In fact, over 200 of his books survive. Ibn Sina is really the Renaissance man before the Renaissance. And so he's our subject today. We hope you'll stay with us. Welcome back. Well, today we're looking at one of the most influential and important figures of the Muslim Middle Ages. In fact, when people point to the great intellectual and cultural achievements of this age, he is frequently the name that they point to first. Now, of course, Ibn Sina himself built his ideas upon Aristotle and the Greeks. He synthesized their works with Islam, but he was very proud of the fact that what came out of that was his own. So we've looked at the translation movement earlier, the two centuries prior to Ibn Sina when Arabic scholars translated, adapted, and interpreted the works of the classical Greek, Roman, and to some extent Hindu thinkers. But it's really with Ibn Sina, more than any other figure, that Arabic and Islamic thought moves from the translation and interpretation of the Greeks into its own right. So if we're looking for a point at which the Arab Muslim civilization really begins to surpass what went before and becomes the leader on the cutting edge, Ibn Sina is a good place to start. And like most of the other figures we've discussed, his life and his work tells us a lot about the time in which he lived, as does the reaction to him. Well, unlike some of the predecessors that we've talked about, Al-Kindi or Al-Farabi, Ibn Sina was not born into humble surroundings. In fact, there's very little humble about him. He was the son of a governor in what is now Uzbekistan, and he was born around 980 AD. He grew up in the city of Bukhara, which is a name today famous for a style of carpet, and it's famous in history for being horribly sacked by Genghis Khan two centuries later, which hints at how the world is going to change in a very short time. But in any case, in Ibn Sina's time, Bukhara, although it was a second-tier city, was still a center of learning and research, and this is a place where Ibn Sina flourished. By age 10, he had distinguished himself as a child prodigy. He had memorized the Quran, of course, and studied an impressive number of Greek works. Now, a lot of what we're taking here comes from the intellectual historian Robert Wisnowski, whose summary of Ibn Sina's life is really the, the best source to go to, it asserts that Ibn Sina's background as a self-taught scholar freed him from much of the accepted doctrine of Arabic philosophy and theology of the day and made him a truly independent thinker. In fact, uh, Ibn Sina, who is not the least bit shy or humble about promoting his own achievements and his own capabilities, says that after he studied with a tutor for a year, he decided he was smarter than the tutor and he had no more need for a teacher. So, even as a teenager, he would go on to be essentially self-taught. And in the Muslim world at this time, there were plenty of places he could go, teaching circles, uh, libraries, places of discussion where he could go and teach himself. 
And that is one of the reasons he becomes such an independent thinker, uh, such a free thinker in his own right. Well, even as a teenager, Ibn Sina's knowledge of medicine so impressed the ruler of his area that he granted Ibn Sina access to the great library that was in Bukhara, and that enabled him to really study on his own. By age 18, Ibn Sina writes that he had learned all the basic sciences and was largely on his own after that. Now, many of you, you can imagine being 18 and just going into college, probably didn't feel like you had learned all the sciences and didn't need anyone else to teach you. Well, if Ibn Sina seems a little bit arrogant, we have to remember the culture of the time. Scholars earned a living by being accepted into the courts of powerful rulers, and the higher up ruler you could work for, the better. Uh, but they essentially had to promote themselves, had to make everybody want to hire them, and that's what he did. So humility was likely to get you overlooked and leave one unemployed. Well, a guy like Ibn Sina, who was so impressed with himself, and who would have the achievements to back it up, uh, could make sure that he was in great demand. Once you got employed, of course, you had to dazzle the ruler and his guests with your skills and your eloquence and also your lively companionship. So Ibn Sina was not only a genius, a great philosopher and great scientist, he was quite a party guy also. And in fact, he boasts of his sexual adventures and his drinking adventures uh, to a great extent. And in fact, that's probably the reason that he died is because he overdid it in his youth. As well as he bra brags about his unmatched intellect, which he was quite proud of. Well, his achievements actually were quite impressive. Of course, if you probably lived around the guy, you probably got sick of hearing about him. But with the passage of time, we can really see that he did have achievements to back up his boasts. Starting with medicine, among his best-known works is a five-volume encyclopedia known as Al-Qanun Fil-Tib, which means the canon of medicine. Now, the word Qanun actually means law in Arabic, but it's related to the word canon not the uh, artillery piece, a cannon, but something that means a distinctive, definitive body of rules or knowledge. Like the Bible is canonized. There's a canon of what books are in it and what books are not. Now, of course, there's several different canons of what belongs in there, but that's what people agree on. So, in this case, he's using the word to mean the, the law, the law of medicine, and the definitive canon of medicine, this five-volume encyclopedia. Well, again, this shows you how confident Ibn Sina is in his own authority. He's writing the definitive word on this subject. Well, he synthesized the works of the great Greeks, Galen and Hippocrates, and with Aristotle's natural philosophy, and of course added his own interpretations of this. And if he seems a bit cocky by calling his version the canon of medicine, well, the rest of the world really went along with him. This would be the primary textbook and resource for teaching medicine, not only in the Middle East, but in Europe for over 500 years. In fact, it was necessary in Europe to understand Arabic in the early days in order to be able to study medicine. But to give you an idea of how important and influential it was, this textbook, which was written in the year 1025 A.D., was still in use in some Italian universities as late as 1715. Now, we would think that would be a pretty important uh, accomplishment. If you could write the definitive textbook on any subject to be used for five centuries, you would think that would be where you'd make your mark. But as impressive as the Qanun was, Ibn Sina felt like medicine was the easy science. He got that out of the way early. He thought philosophy was far more demanding. And although philosophy would be the main project of his life, he wrote on chemistry, astronomy, music, even poetry. Some 450 books are attributed to Ibn Sina, but given his status, it's hard to tell which were actually his. I mean, if you wrote a book and you wanted people to read it, you would claim it came from Ibn Sina, who was the great intellectual figure. 
And, as we mentioned earlier, his partying was legendary, his drinking was legendary, so uh, probably a lot of people absorbed his ideas, overheard his ideas, and he may not have even remembered it. So a lot of people could have plagiarized Ibn Sina without him knowing it. Now, as we always say with all our scholars that we've discussed, most of their works were lost, because largely because of the great Mongol destruction but about 240 of Ibn Sina's works, or at least parts of them, exist today. And that's another reason why he remains such an influential figure. Of course, he was very big in his time. He was very big for centuries after his time. Uh, but one of the reasons that his reputation survives is because a lot of his work survived, and much of it survived in Europe some of it in its Latin translation in Europe. So this is a reason we know so much about this guy. Well, Ibn Sina may represent the epitome of the type of court scholar that rulers wanted for their medjlises, for their nightly gatherings. But we have to remember that there were thousands of others doing the same thing in courts of other political, military, economic leaders throughout the Muslim world. And remember, this required a lot of wealth. We've talked about the legendary medjlis of Saif Adawla in Aleppo, with its great poet Al-Mutanabi and Al-Farabi, the philosopher. We've talked about the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. But there were similar places throughout Spain, North Africa, and Central Asia. Even Ibn Sina made his fame in the city of Bukhara, way up in Uzbekistan. Now, when we think about all that went into a society like that, that could support all of this great intellectual work, all this philosophy going on, and the amount of money that this would cost, this would seem like we're discussing an empire that's at the height of its power, that's promoting unified doctrines throughout its realm. It sounds like a place that has great political stability, military and economic might, and of course an agreement on dominant ideology. But as we've seen, this is not really the case at this time. Remember, we're talking about the beginning of the 11th century, right about the, the turn of the first millennium that Ibn Sina is writing. I mean, really, if we wanted to talk about the unquestioned peak of Islamic power, we'd go back to the Umayyad Caliphate, which was the first real Sunni Caliphate after the Companions of the Prophet. But remember, back there, we didn't have anywhere near the same kind of intellectual traditions going on. And even when we talked about the power of the Abbasid Caliphate at its height, uh, still then the translation movement was still going on, and we were beginning to get original Arabic works. At the time in which Ibn Sina lived, the Abbasid Caliphate had degraded uh, in power to the fact that by that time, really, Abbasid caliphs were figureheads being dominated by military rulers from outside. And the empire had really disintegrated into a lot of independent emirates, independent uh, princes who essentially did their own thing. Places like Khorasan in Central Asia, or Aleppo in Syria, or Bukhara. Well, in Baghdad, the Abbasid caliphs they still had a rich court. There was a lot of money. Uh, they were respected as figureheads. In fact, all the emirs thought it was important to keep them on as figureheads. That sort of gave the, the impression of legitimacy. But at this time, true power was being held by a Persian family known as the Buyids. And they would dominate, it's hard to say rule, but they would dominate for about a century. And they were in fact Shia. And this is sometimes known as the, the Persian interlude in Islamic history. 
Well, in Ibn Sina's time, the Buyids even were gradually losing their power, and they were being pushed out by a powerful Turkish faction, the Seljuks. And the Seljuks are going to be extremely important um, in the future centuries that we're going to talk about, uh, particularly during the time of the Crusades. They would be the dominant power. But we can see that when we talk about the glories of the Arabic Islamic civilization, that the height of military power does not match up with the height of economic power and wealth, and it doesn't match up with the height of intellectual achievements. So we tend to talk about all of these things, about this being a civilization that dominated in all of these areas, and it did, but it's not all at the same time. And in fact, this is quite common, uh, really, for any great civilization. Military conquest comes first, then great building uh, the development of institutions, uh, the development of the, the infrastructure, the growth of the economy, and the artistic, intellectual, and scientific progress tends to lag a little bit behind that. And that's what we're talking about at this time. Well, in any case, to give a little idea of Ibn Sina's background, as we said, the Buyids, these Persians, were being pushed out by the Seljuks. Now the thing about the Seljuks and about the Turkish factions in general who are going to come to really dominate the Muslim world for really all the way up until the, the beginning of the 20th century, uh, they were zealously Sunni. And we've kind of seen how that developed uh, because they were brought in originally to be military forces for the Caliph and as we've talked about in the past, they were used primarily to put down rebellions, which were very often Shiite. And this developed into an ideology amongst the Turks that they would become zealously Sunni. So we have a time where Ibn Sina is writing where this, what's called a Sunni revival, is really beginning. At the same time, a powerful Shiite dynasty really the first one, the first caliphate, the Fatimids, established a separate caliphate in Cairo, which we're going to talk about, and they ruled most of North Africa. So the rise of Shiite influence and power in the Muslim world was a great challenge to the, the Abbasids and also to the, really, the Seljuks, to the Turks who were the power behind them. So all this leads to a rather simple question, uh, this great scholar, Ibn Sina, what was his actual orientation? Well, like many great questions, it doesn't have a clear answer. So to give an idea of the different contexts that influenced him, uh, Shiism was quite popular and it was quite uh, powerful at this time, such that Ibn Sina's father was known as a Shiite scholar. He was an Ismaili uh, Shiite scholar. Well, of course, as we've said, Ibn Sina was a very independent guy and had his own ideas. Uh, he rejected the ideas of the Shiites outright, but that didn't seem to bother his father too much. And He went ahead and sponsored his son's education in the Hanbali school of Islamic law, which of course is a Sunni school, and we've talked about them in the past of being very strict, and so that doesn't sort of jive very well with the opinion we have of Ibn Sina as an independent guy. So, yes, he was brought up to some extent in a Shiite environment. He was educated in a strict Hanbali school, but at a, an early age, in his teens, he decided he was going to make his own mind up and do things for himself. So historians debate what Ibn Sina's actual sect was, uh, many prominent Shiite scholars like to claim him, claim that he's a Shiite. But the most uh, modern accepted opinion, and this is particularly advanced by uh, the Yale professor Dmitry Gutas, who is uh, one of the most uh, influential scholars today on this subject, is that Ibn Sina was basically a Sunni. But the difficulty arises in the fact that he was very independent in his thought, and therefore his Sunni thought didn't necessarily match up with the Hanbalis. So overall, this mixing of sects and communities, and even families, it speaks to a level of toleration in the Caliphate, at least at this time, uh, that 
although yeah, the Sunni-Shia split had occurred, someone like Ibn Sina could have a foot in all these different uh, sects and could make his own synthesis out of them. Now that period is going to come to an end very soon. By the time Ibn Sina died, uh, the very zealously Sunni Seljuk Turks uh, would be fighting against the rebellious sects such as the Assassins, who were a Shiite sect, uh, and this is really going to come to a head. But at his time, there's a bit of a, a synthesis going on. Well, as we've mentioned, Ibn Sina got his start in Bukhara, in what is today Uzbekistan, and this again makes it difficult to say to whom he belonged. As such a great figure, everybody wants to claim him. Now, the Arabs definitely claim him as one of their own, because he wrote in Arabic. Uh, Persians also claim him as being one of their own. Uzbekistan claims him, and uh, I've even heard professors of Spanish talk about the great Spanish philosopher Avicenna. Now that is definitely a stretch, but this is an example of how cosmopolitan the Islamic empire was at this time. Uh, definitely the thing that is Arabic about him is the language in which he's writing, and that's what ties a lot of the scholars together. Well, anyway, as we said, in Bukhara, the dominant faction was a family called the Samanids. And again, they're essentially independent from Baghdad's control. Yes, they are part of the Abbasid Caliphate, and they have pretty strong connections to the extent that someone like Ibn Sina can go from there to Baghdad uh, and uh, work in Baghdad. But they're essentially rivals of the Buyids who are ruling in Baghdad and all of them are technically subordinate to a figurehead Khalif. Well, in addition to Ibn Sina, the Samanids hosted a number of great scholars and poets and they were particularly interested in reviving ancient Persian culture. So they sponsored some of the greatest Persian poets to recreate Persian legends and epics among them. Uh, the poet Taqiqi wrote an epic of early Persian history and began work on the Shahnameh, or the Book of Kings, which is one of the, the greatest works in Persian. This would uh, eventually be completed by Ferdowsi, who is a Persian Samanid uh, contemporary of Ibn Sina. So this disparity of political and cultural power, the flourishing of different cultures at a time when the uh, empire is really disintegrating is, is common throughout history. Um, and this raises the question of whether we can really speak of an Abbasid period of dominance that lasted for 500 years. Well, if that means political and military control, then no. Uh, the Abbasid dominance was quite brief. But if we're speaking about cultural influence, the idea of an Abbasid golden age based on the values and ideas that were established by Harun al-Rashid and al-Ma'mun in the Beit al-Hikmah, then it extends for definitely more than five centuries, and it's, it's quite accurate. So a man like Ibn Sina, with all his different uh, backgrounds and all the different threads he brings together, is a, an example of what we're talking about by this sort of Arabic Renaissance uh, culture. Okay, well, the uh, accomplishments of the Abbasid world on an intellectual level can be seen in the work of one of Ibn Sina's contemporaries and colleagues, to give one example. Uh, Abu Rehan Muhammad ibn Ahmed al-Baruni, who is known as al-Baruni, also worked under the Samanids and kept up an active correspondence with Ibn Sina. He was a scholar in his own right, wrote over 140 books of math, physics, astronomy, pharmacology, any particular obsession of his was the study of time or timekeeping, chronology among societies. He was very interested in how different societies marked time. But Al-Baruni is best known today for his study on the history of religions, which he undertook uh, not as a religious project to argue for Islam or to argue against other faiths, but really as an anthropological project, the way we would study it today. And his best-known work in this regard is known as the Indica, 
although its uh, actual title translates more like verifying all that the Indians say, whether reasonable or not, which hints at at least the objective nature of the work he's trying to go for. And it's really a study of Hindu culture. And what is really fascinating about uh, this today is we look at it and we see someone who's definitely a part of the Muslim uh, renaissance and he's definitely a Muslim himself but he's interested in studying how Hinduism is practiced in India for uh, social science reasons not to judge it I mean at least to the extent that he uh, he is able to keep an objective perspective on this. So it's, a, it's really a revealing work about what it says about the times in which he lived. Uh, he was a member of the court of Mahmud of Ghazni, who was again another essentially autonomous Muslim ruler who was basically in the Abbasid sphere of control, and he controlled a, an area that's uh, largely Afghanistan and parts of uh, Pakistan as well. Uh, he was a court astronomer, but he uh, accompanied Mahmud on his military campaigns into India. And that is where he was for at least three years, participating in military operations. But at the same time, he went out and made detailed studies of Indian religion, history, science, celebrations, and, of course, his obsession with their calendars, how they mark time, how they uh, mark their religious festivals. Okay, so... This is remarkable in the fact that Hinduism is not even a monotheistic religion at all. Uh, in to, to many Muslims and to many today, it, it appears as paganism. And it's a religion that he says is totally different than Islam. But he dealt with it in a, in a fairly objective nature for the time in which he lived. And he even received the approval and support of Hindu scholars at the time. So it reflects a sort of a humanistic interest in other societies, even non-Muslim societies without judgment. Now, you have to bear that in mind when we're looking at other people. This is certainly not the way that Ibn Hanbal looked at it. And this is probably not the way that the average uh, Muslim citizen looked at it. But still, this is a guy who has sponsorship and support of rulers, and he is able to do this. And he's able to do this during a time that military campaigns and conquests are going on, but they're not looking to destroy the existing culture. They're looking to study it, and what can we learn from it? It's a very different conquest uh, than the type we're going to talk about in two centuries when the Mongols come, which, of, of course, I have beaten on a lot and will continue to. But this, again, gives us a picture of this society. Well, anyway, we promised to talk about Ibn Sina, but that's just setting the stage a little bit. Because when we do talk about Ibn Sina and his philosophy, I mean, yes, we can say that he is really the first genuine Islamic philosopher, and he created a truly logical system by which to defend the claims of, of Islam. And it's a system that didn't shun any knowledge of previous civilizations or foreign societies, but instead used them, uh, used knowledge from other societies and other religions to prove, in his, at least in his thinking, he was proving the essential and inevitable truth of Islam. Now, that's a great achievement, and we like to talk about that. But, of course, something on that level of detail and something he spent a lifetime working at, it's fairly complicated. And for a podcast of this length, it's going to be pretty difficult to go uh, into any depth about what he actually uh, thought uh, without being somewhat confusing. So we're going to try and, and look at this. But in any case, uh, we can say that Ibn Sina would be attacked later by conservative thinkers, and most notably the one that would uh, come out would be Al-Ghazali, who we're going to talk about. Uh, Al-Ghazali felt that Ibn Sina went too far in this logical 
proof of Islam, and this would always be a tension. Uh, now, Al-Ghazali, he countered, and he said that religious revelation and philosophy had to be separate from some uh, concepts, from some philosophical and logical concepts, that they shouldn't be mixed together. And this is really a separation of religious and secular thought. And of course, that's a really a defining characteristic of uh, religious conservatism. And Al-Ghazali's view would become dominant in the Muslim world. And as we'll discuss in his episode, in fact, the, the eminent uh, scientist Neil deGrasse Tyson blames Al-Ghazali for the complete fall of Muslim science and logic. Well, I mean, that's not exactly what happened, but you can get an idea that there, there is a reaction to what Ibn Sina is doing. It's not everybody is running out and saying that this is great. Okay. So now to look at his ideas. Uh, for Ibn Sina, he did not believe that science and philosophy and religion were different subjects. In his mind, there was only one thing. That was reality. That was the truth. Anything that was true about science or philosophy that could be applied to the discussion of the world in general would only reinforce the tenets of Islam, and he was determined to prove it. And his, his thinking, if you didn't agree with that, if you thought that there was something in philosophy or science that could uh, hurt the faith in Islam, then you just didn't understand it. So, of course, the first challenge he's going to start with, and the one that you sort of have to, is to prove the existence of God. Now, people have been doing this for centuries, and they're still trying to do it, but he felt that he had done this uh, well. So, uh, his work was known as Burhan al-Siddiqin, or Proof of the Truthful. Now, he bases his whole thought on a distinction between what is necessary and what's usually translated as contingent, but that's not a good word, and it's a, it's a bit confusing. But his idea is what's necessary in what is not necessary but exists. Now, necessity is a very important concept for Aristotle, who, when he defined it, he defined no less than five different types of necessity. Two of these were of particular interest to Muslim philosophy. And there's the idea of a necessity of something that must exist. And therefore, in a religious sense, that would be the divine. And then there's the idea of a necessity of something that is required to produce something else. Now, the terms that uh, Ibn Sina uses really work better for this differentiation. Uh, they actually make a bit more sense, and we'll talk about them. But an important thing to, talk, to understand when we talk about this is what he means by necessity. Necessity doesn't mean like you have to do this or you go to jail or something like that. What, what he's saying in looking at the world, there are some things that have to be necessary, and there are some things that are not. For instance, the easiest thing is to say that the existence of any one of us, of me, of you who are listening, are we absolutely necessary? Is it possible to conceive of a world in which we didn't exist? Well, it may not be for you, but uh, for me it's pretty easy. I mean, yes, I mean, th there is a possibility that, that I might not have existed, that you might not have existed, that this room that I'm sitting in right now might not have existed. Those things are all possible, so therefore we can't say that those things are necessary. But if we follow the logic, could we say that there is something that absolutely must exist given that everything else exists? And this is where these two terms come out. So, uh, for example, it, at least with you know biology as we have it now, I mean, if I exist, then that means my parents were necessary, or something was necessary to prove me. The fact that I exist means it's necessary that there is something there that, that produced me. In that case, that's parents. So that's really the, the second type of necessity that I mentioned before, the one that is necessary to produce something else. Well, that's great, but that doesn't get you very far in the chain. So, okay, so since I exist, it's necessary that my parents existed well, then it's necessary that their parents existed. And we could go back and back uh, 
all the way to the to the beginning but the idea is still okay what well, could we imagine in a world in which none of those people had existed yeah we could well then we get to that other type of necessity that is a thing that must exist in and of itself and the idea here is that well these other things are contingent right they're necessary because something else exists because i know i exist i know my parents must have existed and so forth but inevitably we're going to come back to something at the beginning that must have existed or else nothing could exist and that is what aristotle was talking about and that is what ibn Sina is going to develop and i just hammer this so much because this is what everything else in his philosophy is based on this idea of necessity okay so for what is usually uh, rendered in english as necessary ibn sina uses the word wajib all right and wajib does mean necessary but he uses the term wajib al-wujud bidatihi and the, the word thatahi is the one in arabic grammar that students hate but it means self self-governing be in and of itself so he's talking about the thing that must exist in and of itself for no other reason than itself it must exist and this is different than wajib al-wujud bi that is something that is necessary for existence by or with another and then ibn sina offers a third category mumkin al-wujud the possibility of existence so the genius in ibn sina's formulation that these simple logical terms provide the basis for a simple paradigm so all the things that exist in the world today that we can see that we can touch they could be wajib al-wujud bi or mumkin al-wujud because we can imagine them existing or not now they may be necessary for the existence of someone else like parents children right uh, if you didn't have one you couldn't have the other but you can still imagine a world in which anything that you can look at and touch at couldn't exist but what Ibn Sina says is not everything can be put into those categories meaning that if you did this would just go on and on forever and one thing that is not allowable in classical logic is an infinite regression something that goes on and on and on so what he's saying is although almost everything in the world can be can exist because of something else that causes it to exist there has to be at least one thing you start with which is the necessary existence okay so if the existence of me is because of my parents and so on you have to come to something that must exist by itself without anything else bringing it into existence and therefore that is the first cause that causes everything else to exist if it did not exist nothing else would be possible therefore when we look around and see that there is stuff in the world we know that there must be one necessary cause something that has to exist now having proved that or at least being uh, confident in his own mind that he has proved it uh, Ibn Sina can then go on and develop his whole entire paradigm of basically his logic of, of theology and philosophy of the world now if you listen to that argument I just gave it sounds a lot like uh, the argument that is used for intelligent design today uh, it's similar to that the idea that if something created something else you, there has to be something that was not created but anyway Ibn Sina argues that this necessary thing must be unique there can't be more than one because if there were more than one then one of them wouldn't be necessary right okay so then he says that this thing this necessary existent this wajib al-wujud must be indivisible otherwise right if you had parts of it then you could take parts of it away and parts of it would be unnecessary so just by logic he's saying 
we've agreed there must be something that is at the beginning of everything and that thing must be indivisible well of course this is so important because of the Muslim idea of the unity of God of Tawheed really Islam is all about this unity of God against anything that would seem to, to detract from that in any way okay so he has sold us on this necessity that must exist that causes everything else to exist that is unique that is indivisible well he then says this sounds a lot like God and by saying that they're the same thing he's now able to synthesize the God of the Quran and this logical necessity now the purpose of revelation is just to confirm this for people because we can't expect everybody to go through this whole uh, logical process look at the centuries it took us to get to Ibn Sina himself uh, this argument would be a very influential on Christian and Jewish philosophers as well as other Muslims uh, for example um, Moses Maimonides the Jewish philosopher and Thomas Aquinas uh, would both pick this up okay well what was the problem with Ibn Sina's theories at least in the view of his critics particularly Al-Ghazali well the next conclusion that Ibn Sina draws again starting with this necessary things that must be necessary uh, is that the creation of the world he believes was necessary necessarily followed uh, as did God's mercy and so on by virtue of the fact that God was necessary and therefore God was perfect well a perfect God wouldn't not create a world and that world wouldn't not be perfect and this God wouldn't be unmerciful and so on and he's arguing that once you accept this this ultimate necessity all these other things follow logically well the advantage of this is you can argue with people from all other backgrounds and say you know whether you're Muslim or not you, you have to accept this just on logic that God must exist and he must be the way we say he is but to someone like Al-Ghazali what this sounded like is you were taking away the voluntary nature of God's actions if the creation was necessary then it wasn't because God did it and if God's mercy was necessary then it wasn't a voluntarily thing now the, the problem was not his logic but the fact that he was sort of depersonalizing God into a series of abstract arguments uh, now Al-Ghazali he would be one of the leading if not the leading proponents of Sufism that mystical personal union with God which had a, a lot of popular support I mean much more than people who could follow the philosophy of Ibn Sina so the the idea that you were having union with this very personal God and now here's a guy who's talking about the the wajib al-wajud the ultimate necessity and then everything that comes out of God is a necessity you were making it sound very impersonal and that's what they didn't like now in fact this whole idea of logical argumentation for Islam known as kalam in Arabic that's a word that means speech but it refers really to Islamic theology uh, had been under fire for this same reason and so uh, as the conservatism begins to grow uh, Ibn Sina and people like him are going to uh, come under a lot of criticism well in any case Ibn Sina did not stop with just this uh, one argument okay he had proven the nature of God now he wants to prove the existence and the nature of the soul he's not exactly keeping it simple here and this is another of Ibn Sina's very famous theories is his uh, thought experiment known as the floating man and it's worth sharing here so he's trying to prove that there is a self a soul a nature uh, a part of humanity that is separate from the body and lives after the body is gone well how do you prove that most of us wouldn't try but Ibn Sina of course thought he could prove anything 
So what he uses is this analogy of the floating man. It's a hypothetical scenario in which we are asked to imagine a person who is created such that they are floating in a vacuum. And they are made in such a way that their eyes face forward and their limbs are outstretched. Even the fingers are made in such a way that they do not touch. Well, this sounds a little bit bizarre, but we're essentially expected to imagine a person who has no sensory input of himself. This person can't see himself, obviously can't hear himself, uh, and can't touch himself in any way because he's created in this very strange way. Now, if this thought experiment seems bizarre, they were actually popular among the Greeks. Uh, Plato's analogy of the cave is a very famous example of an absurd and impossible scenario that causes us to envision how the mind would work. So, the question Ibn Sina asks, and the reason it's effective, is because anyone can imagine this. Now, I mean, in, in more realistic terms, you can imagine someone who is paralyzed, who has suffered nerve damage, uh, maybe even before they're born, and has no sensory input. So the question would be, is this person aware of their own existence? Now, your answer would be yes, of course, of course you would be. And this immediately conjures to mind uh, Descartes' famous axiom, I think, therefore I am, which was made 600 years later. Uh, the difference is that Descartes and all the people who come up with these brain-in-a-jar type thought experiments after him are arguing for the existence of the mind, that there is a mind that is separate from the body. Ibn Sina, he wants to go beyond this. He wants to prove the existence of a soul, an eternal rational soul. Okay, now, nowadays with modern neuroscience, we could take this apart, okay, because they, I mean, that's one of the biggest subjects that they discuss is the nature of consciousness and particularly the idea of how the self, the concept of the self, is developed. But we're talking about a thousand years ago uh, before that work was even possible. So anyway, he's come up with this very brilliant idea that synthesizes religion, psychology, and logic. Okay, so the idea is that we say, okay, that there is something that I identify with as being me, even if I don't associate a body with it, even if I don't have any actions to go with it or anything else. So there's this idea of the self, and it must be rational because you're able to think. Now, having proven that to his uh, satisfaction that it is separate from the body, Ibn Sina goes on to argue that this rational soul continues to exist even after the body dies. Now, again, this is something that modern neuroscience could definitely disprove. But his thought is it doesn't depend on the body. You don't have to touch anything. You don't have to have any sensory input, uh, any physical action at all in order to be thinking. So therefore, when the body's dead, the thinking, or at least this rational part of the soul, can go on. Okay, that in his mind is what the soul is. And in, in his mind, he's made this logical, scientific proof for the existence of an eternal soul. And not only that, he's defined it in a way that he can discuss it uh, rationally. Well, that may sound like a bit much, and it did sound like that to people of his day. Al-Ghazali, for one, thought this was worthy of takfir. Uh, that is condemnation as an unbeliever. Uh, mainstream Sunni thought insisted on the resurrection of the body after death. They thought you were completely resurrected uh, to go to heaven to live with God. Here, I mean, he's taken the body out of it. Uh, even worse, the idea of the bodily resurrection was denied by uh, some of the Shia, and particularly the Ismailiya Shia, which is where his father came from. So it sounded to them like Ibn Sina was supporting a position held by the Ismaili uh, Shiites, and it denied the very physical description of the resurrection. And what was particularly important about that for uh, mainstream preachers was they placed a lot of emphasis on the fact that the afterlife, 
whether it be in heaven or in hell, is going to be physical, the pains of hell and the pleasures of heaven, and that these were going to be real. I mean, he's talking now that there isn't even a body, that there's just this intellect that survives. Um, so this, uh, Al-Ghazali thought, was sufficient reason to excommunicate Ibn Sina as a, as a kafir, as a... Um, as an infidel. It was not the only one he came up with. So just to give you an idea that this was quite controversial, but in his time there were still uh, those who could and did agree with this. Well, it's quite commonplace today to herald Ibn Sina as the exemplar of Muslim intellectual freedom and to blame al-Ghazali for shutting the door on that and bringing in conservatism. Now, this, of course, is an oversimplification, and it's quite unfair to Al-Ghazali, as we'll see when we talk about him. He had some brilliant ideas of his own. But it does exemplify the fact that at this time, about the year 1000, when this great uh, Abbasid empire is going through this transition, when this very conservative, zealous uh, Sunni Turkish influence is coming in, uh, is bringing about a shift. And so the ideas of what we could call the liberalism, the sort of free thinking of Ibn Sina, and the conservatism of Al-Ghazali, these would continue to compete. However, uh, a lot of important political shifts are happening. The Crusades are going to come, and this is going to provoke a very strong conservative reaction, particularly from the Turks, uh, who will essentially be in charge and be the main ones fighting against the crusaders and of course the mongols are going to come and and spread uh, tremendous destruction in the islamic world and it will never rise to the level that it was before and so this is why we can talk about this time of ibn sina and really in the sort of the twilight of the abbasid glory age as being really a, a golden age in in all of human intellectual history not just Islamic history, and that it's beginning to wane, that we're beginning to see the light go out in that. So thank you very much for your kind attention. It's been a pleasure to talk today about this great man, Ibn Sina. I hope you will continue to learn more about him yourself because he's got a lot to offer. But we're going to talk about the directions that are coming up in the future in upcoming episodes. So I hope you will stay with us. I hope to see you again in the future. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Shukran Jazilan. Wa salama.